understanding the nature of his ministry and the time from which they lived and the purpose of the Holy Spirit in his life and what would proceed from his resurrection and everything he accomplished in his ministry. It says this in Matthew. Again, the last and final parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he turns to them and says, Have you understood all these things? Disciples presumably turned back to him and said, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were all astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Here is Jesus Christ culminating this section, this chapter in his ministry. And he had been through a northern area called Galilee, preaching and doing signs and wonders, and then closing with a large crowd that accumulated to him and gave them all uh, mysterious riddles, parables, and he only gave the interpretation to his disciples. After all of this, he returns home to his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up. And there he begins to speak inside of the synagogue, which is the synagogue that he would have grown up in, but he comes back now as a more mature man. But they remember him as the little boy. And they truly are astonished. He's speaking in great wisdom. He's expounding. Could you imagine Jesus giving you the scriptures? They're astonished. The, what he's able to say and connect and draw out. But they take offense at him because the reality is that familiarity of knowing him, they can't see him for who he is. And the reverse is true. What's been the case with every one of these parables is Jesus chooses not to impart himself to people who do not want him. And so it ends by saying he didn't do many miracles there because they didn't believe in him. He just simply wouldn't give himself to them. But he will speak privately for very long hours with his disciples about everything as far as they have genuine interest and know him and see him for who he is. 
the most remarkable phrase that he has, and the one I want to focus today, is the part about the old and the new. He speaks about the kingdom of heaven. He manages to discuss it as the fish that is a large dragnet, and the kingdom of heaven is like everybody being gathered together in one place, and then thrown in various bins. It matches all the other parables that Jesus has been doing at this time. The first one was the sower and the soils. The second one was the wheat and the tares. Then he moved on to expansion with the mustard seed and the leaven, the hidden treasure and the hidden pearl. All these parables are there, but the first two match it most closely where you have the soil and the sower. There's a very broad, you say, when you speak about TV or radio, it's called broadcasting. Well, you think about What is uh, this man doing with this seed? He's throwing it everywhere. It's landing on all different soils. Rocks, pathway, good soil. What's with the net? Ministry is not fly fishing. It's a drag net. It's commercial fishing. This isn't a sport. This isn't a game. This net is scooping everything. All the fish. The gospel is going out everywhere. People are responding various ways. Some are good fish. They hear the gospel of salvation. They hear of Jesus and they respond. And others are, we're told, unrighteous. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They'll simply stand before the Lord on their own righteousness and they will not stand before the Lord because they cannot stand on their own righteousness. But the way it happens is through seed cast broadly or nets dragged through a whole body of water. See, as a church, we should be thinking, if this is the case of the kingdom, if this is the work of the Spirit, then yes, yes, we should be influencing our culture. We should be speaking the gospel in everywhere. Let God figure it out. Let God figure it out, but there is no need to be small. There is no need to have just individual evangelism. The gospel needs to be preached It needs to be heralded as a trumpet. The Reformation happened after Gutenberg invented the printing press. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that everyone could have their own books to read their own Bibles, to hear the gospel for the first time. It has to be broadcasted. It has to be published. And so here we have this parable closing all the other parables. And then you find, finally, the great rejection of Jesus. The final rejection of it all. He goes out into all this ministry, does all these signs and wonders, and he comes back to where it all started, back in Nazareth to his home. And even there, the very beginning of everything, he finds nothing more than the same thing he's found other places, which is rejection. They do not accept him for who he is. And what's beautiful about all this, and what I hope to spend the time this morning is to see his words where he says that there are those who are scribes for the kingdom of God. He says, if you understood all these things, he said, a scribe that is trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house, someone who has command. Oiko despot it is. That is the, the, the despot of the house the commander of the house, the one who actually owns everything, knows what's up in the attic, knows what's down in the basement, and can bring it all out and give you all the backstories to everything that is in that person's house, their house. They can pull it out. They can show you, demonstrate to you everything, all the treasures that they have. 
This is what Jesus says is a scribe. He can bring out the treasures from what is new and what is old. A scribe is someone who is trained. There were professional scribes in Jesus' day. He's making that analogy. They would have been the ones that went through the law with a fine-tooth comb, trained their whole life to interpret the Old Testament. And Jesus goes and likens, and here's the thing for you and I, particularly you, particularly you. Yes, I've given my whole life to expounding the Scriptures. Yes. But that's not what a scribe is. Someone trained to interpret scripture. Here, it is the word for mathetes, which is the word for disciple. The word for trained. Someone who is, Jesus says, trained. A scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven. That is a different translation. A scribe discipled for the kingdom of heaven. It could be a similar word for discipled, not trained. Your English Bibles might say trained, but it could be someone who is discipled for the kingdom of heaven. Now, are you all scribes? Are you all disciples? Yes. Anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple. Do you view yourself as the one who can unlock the ancient oracles of God? When we say we should, we should publish this gospel, we should speak this gospel to everywhere we go. Well, yeah, the problem with that is when you do that, a lot of questions come up afterwards. And that's a little intimidating. And so there's only two options. Just don't open your mouth for Jesus. There's no questions. Or become a scribe and have a ready answer for the hope that is in you. And be trained. View yourself as a scribe for the kingdom of heaven. This is what we do. After this, we have adult classes, children's classes. Week by week, you can go deep with God. This is something for his disciples. This is something for us to consider. Jesus is starting a new scribal school. He's rejecting all the other old scribes that came before. A rabbi would go around with many people following him. And they would start their own rabbinic school. Jesus is saying, I have my own scribes. I'm training my own scribes for the kingdom. They are going, though everyone is rejecting me now, and they're not seeing the mustard seed. They're not seeing the leaven. They're not seeing the pearl of great price. They're not seeing the treasure hidden in the field. They're not seeing everything yet. The kingdom will come, and I am already beginning to train my scribes to articulate that kingdom when it is manifest. And so Jesus warns them once in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build the tombs for the prophets. You build monuments for the prophets. You say that if you'd lived, you wouldn't have slayed the prophets like those of old. But I will send to you, Jesus said, prophets, wise men, and scribes. And they will kill, and you will kill them. Jesus knew that those who were coming from him those who were going to find the Old Testament, the laws, and all the prophecies that they could not see in Jesus were going to reorient it, twist it, and interpret it so that Jesus will become clear. There will be scribes for the kingdom. And Jesus defines this scribe from the very beginning of the gospel where he opens up by saying, 
And this is so beautiful that Matthew made the gospel this way. Because if you were to read the gospel and you were to read Jesus' life, you would think he hates everything that is old and he's doing everything new and he's cut it all off from the past. All the old predictions of him to come. And that's why everyone's rejecting him. Because he's changing the game midstream. He's altering the rules. You ever play a board game with someone? And you're like, hey, that's not the boardwalk. You can't have that. That's not how the rule works in Monopoly. I've never finished a game Monopoly. Right? But it's not appropriate when someone's just altering the rules. Hey, the Messiah is supposed to do this, this, and this, and you're not doing this, this, and this, and you're angry at us for rejecting you. Jesus says, no, I will make scribes. And from the beginning, he said, you will misunderstand me, but in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not suppose that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen of the law will fall away until all is accomplished. He says that up front because he knows everyone is going to think he's abolishing and tearing down the law. And then he defines the scribe by saying, so anyone who sets aside the least of the smallest of these commandments and teaches, that's what scribes do, they teach, teach others to do the same, will be called smallest in the kingdom of heaven. But any person who does them and teaches them all will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus defines his scribe as one, the one who able to go back into everything and bring it together without cutting out one single period or comma from the Old Testament. Without missing one beat, without missing one thread, being able to bring it all to Jesus Christ and demonstrate the fact that it is true, manifest true, that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah to come. And he will fulfill all this law, either by direct prediction or by images and types and shadows. And so, an abnormal, especially uh, here this morning, uh, sermon will proceed in which I will try to do my best. I will try to do my best in literally a few minutes to tie the whole Bible together. Beth went like this when I did that. She's like, go get it. I will try. I will fail. And I will try. And I hope. And I pray that you will see the beauty of Jesus Christ, that this will be a service to you. A master of the house is like someone who can grab all the treasure chests and unlock them and show you everything inside. The word Jesus uses for treasure is the same word we get for thesaurus. It is you unlock one word and you can find an analogy to so many other words. The image is of a man who has a treasure chest and he has guests over and he spoils them with riches and kindness and gifts and treasures. And he goes back into his attic and he goes down into his basement and he brings out all these treasures, the old and the new. Jesus' point is that the rejection cannot go the other way. That is, for example, when we preach, for example, through the book of Genesis and through the book of Exodus, we don't just be one of those churches that happens to preach the New Testament all the time and then cherry pick a few Old Testament verses. The master of the house can bring it all out, go into any part of it anywhere, and present it before you as beautiful treasure. And if that cannot be presented, then you don't own it. You don't even know what it's for. 
But the scribe for the kingdom has dominion, control of everything in this house. And my challenge to you is, perhaps not today, but make that your life goal. That there would not be one verse in all of Scripture that you cannot unlock. There should be not one period or comma that you cannot point to Jesus Christ. Find Him. And be the master of this house. Be a scribe for the kingdom. What I'll proceed to do is lay out these treasure chests as we call covenants, promises that God has given. This is what's called covenant theology. It ties it all together. It's like being the master of a house or a master musician, someone who is able to play an instrument. It sits there dormant, but until the man knows how to handle it and play it, it can produce music. It's not new in the sense that it never existed. It's new in that it's found its purpose. See, Jesus is not saying the old and the new is the new just appeared. The new, he says, particularly in chapter 13, I will speak to them in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And that's what the new thing is. It's not absolutely new. It's actually been here the whole time. No one's been able to see it. It's been hidden since the foundations of the world. Jesus is opening that wisdom. He's giving it new even though it's been there forever. There's a archaeologists will go and find sites and one of the most the ancient um, uh, instruments probably ever created is a lithophone, they call it. A lithophone. It's simply nothing more than when they go to these sites and find these old civilizations, there was a set of rocks set in a unique order that causes them to pause. And they're naturally occurring rocks. They're not particularly cut or shaped in any way. But it was an instrument they would use. They would find these rocks that were there anyway. They were already around and these ancient people would put them together in various orders like a xylophone, which you have those cut wooden bricks set from ascending and descending order, and they hit them because they find all the notes inside the bricks. Well, way back in the day, somebody was able to discover that there were notes inside these rocks, and they placed them in perfect order. Thousands of years ago, hitting these stones that were already there, Someone just had to put them in the right order. Someone had to know what they were doing. And they play this music through stones. What I hope to do is to lay out for you all the covenants of God in an ascending and descending order so that you will hear this beautiful song that God has been constructing. These are things that are hidden. The first covenant, the treasure boxed up on lock, is what's called the covenant of creation, the covenant of works. It is the beginning of it all. When God made everything, it was a covenant, it was a promise, it was something that was cut. In the ancient Hebrew mindset, a covenant is cut. To cut something is to make a promise. Now God cut everything apart in creation. In the first day, he cut light from darkness. In the second day, he created expanse and cut the water from below to the water above. In the third day, he cut all the waters in one place and the dry land on another. Jeremiah 33 says, The Lord made a covenant with day and night. 
33.25 said he established a covenant with day and night and fixed the order of the heavens and earth. The scriptures call this a covenant, a, a solemn promise, an oath that God would make the world as such. And in that world, there were three layers of creativity, three layers of creation. The first we said, the light cut from the darkness on the first day. The second layer is the cutting of the waters above from the waters below. And the third layer is the cutting of the sea to the dry land. Three layers of creation. And the back six of six days of creation was doing nothing more than filling in those three layers. That on the fourth day, God made the stars into that heavenly host that he created. On the fifth day, he put birds in the air and he put fish in the sea in the waters above and the waters below. And on the final day, he made land, which involves shrubs and bushes and animals. And lastly of all, on the sixth and final day, the number of a man, the sixth day, he makes him. And he puts him in a garden. And inside that garden, there are three layers of sanctity. We have on the very outside, everything is wilderness. It's uncultivated, we're told in Scripture. And then on the inner side, there's a place he called Eden that he made. And on the inside of Eden, he made this thing called a garden. And he put a man, naked, in that garden, in a safe place, cultivated with already pre-made food for the plucking. This man walked with God in the cool of the day inside that garden. There was no thing harmful for his feet. He's walking in a lush place, not in the dry, arid desert. And he is having fellowship with God. He is walking with God. This is a holy place. The garden is the most holy place. Inside of that is an Eden. And then outside is this barren wilderness. Now, he was particularly commissioned to extend the vine of that garden, that cultivated area, into all the world. He was told in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living thing. He set man in the garden in Genesis 2.15 to work and to keep the particular commandments given to the priests in the Old Testament. To work the garden, to keep the garden. And that was to subdue to the rest of the world where there was no garden, where there was no culture, where there was no beautiful blessing food and fruitfulness. Inside of the center of that garden, which was in the center of Eden, which was in the center of the wilderness, there's a tree. That tree is in knowledge of good and evil. And there was also another tree, a tree of life. He was invited to eat with God. But he had to wait. He took along that tree and ate before it was his time. And he died. Romans 5.18 tells us, As one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. He's referring to Adam. One act of sin from Adam led to condemnation. The reverse in Jesus Christ is his one act of righteousness leads to righteousness and life for all men. This, Paul is assuming that the tree of life was there for him to eat. Because if he would have passed the test, if he would have not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was another tree he would have been rewarded with. 
the tree of life. Paul connects that in Romans 5.18. There was a fall. He realizes he is naked. You and I know the shame of guilt. Social anxiety alone. Just not being yourself. Feeling wrong. And then never mind the actual real guilt. What causes you to drink? What causes you to oversleep? What causes everything? There is something inside that is broken. Your brain is snapped. Your soul is corrupted. And sometimes it's your fault. And sometimes it's the nature of the very creation we live. That your legs are broken. Your mind is broken. And we will all die. So God guarded that holy place and that tree of life that he shouldn't take it. And he put angels there, cherubim, with flaming swords to kill and cut anyone who comes near to try to take hold of God's life without righteousness. Because you cannot have life without righteousness. Here's the second treasure chest. A covenant of grace. A gracious covering was cut for his nakedness. This man was naked and ashamed and he and his wife took fig leaves and covered themselves. And God took an animal, the hide of a skin, and presumably killed an animal in cold blood to cover that nakedness and shame. Covering in Hebrew is atonement, to atone, to cover that sin. There had to be life and blood and death that run over his body, a warm life of a hide on his back that was once a living animal, you see. Covering all of his sin and shame. And then Genesis 3.15, we're told, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to this deceitful serpent, the snake. There will be hostility. There will be a war forever in this creation until it is consummated. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And it will extend through multiple generations. He proceeds to say, and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring, you will be at odds with one another. He, singular, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How can it be a singularity and a plural? How can there be multiple seeds to come, but then one he? How would there be one snake and one fight between one man through multiple seeds and generations? Cain killed his brother. And you realize that even though Cain and Abel were both physically descended from that woman, the seed of the woman, one of them was the seed of the serpent. There is a spiritual lineage that begins from that point. That you have Cain and Abel. One is the son of a righteousness person who offers sacrifice to God. And one who is still born of that woman but actually is the seed of the snake. He kills him. And he is cursed. And not only moved because when Adam and Eve sinned they were removed from the garden. And then Cain sinned and was removed into the wilderness. The third tier. And Cain says my burden is too much for me to bear. And he says that the land will not produce any fruit for you at all. You had a pre-made garden in the sanctity and the holy presence of God. You cursed from that. Now you're left in Eden, which is at least on top of a mountain, which is doing pretty well. And then even then, he's removed into the arid, dry, fruitless wilderness. The third level of removal. The third treasure chest is this covenant given to Noah. 
in which a man, we're told, had favor with God and he walked in a blameless life. That is, he had the undeserved grace of God upon his life. And what resulted from that is faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. And he had faith to literally walk with God in a blameless manner. He was faithful to the covenant because he had real faith, because he had real grace. And he walked with God, and the children of the serpent were spawning. That is to say, wickedness was great, and every intent of the thought of their heart was only sin continually. And God decided to destroy all of the children of the snake and to snuff them all out under the floods of the water. And what happened was he made a boat in three layers. He made three layers of creation in this boat. There was a bottom, very bottom part of the boat that sunk to the depths of where the boat would be suspended in the water. There was a middle section of the boat. And there was a top section of the boat where there were windows. And that matches the creation of the depths of the water, the middle of the the land, and the top of the heavens where there are windows, and the fountains of the deep and the door of the bottom of the boat. It's all pointing to God decreating the world. And what he does in the flood is he backs up the third day of creation in which he separated the waters above from the waters below. And he brought down, it says, the windows of heaven were open and it rained for days and the fountains of the deep were open and the water came up. And so that heaven that he created, aparting the waters from the water, closes as a sandwich to exterminate all the children of the serpent. And then God has a strong east wind that pushes all the water away and dries it up. When Adam was removed from the garden, he had to leave eastward. The Spirit came rushing eastward to dry it all back up and bring creation back to where it once was. And there was covenant food. Noah had new wine in a new world where there was no sin. A dove landed on a sinless world where there was not one sinful human to corrupt it. And it came back with an olive branch, a green creation starting new. And he plants a vine and it produces this new world, produces an intoxicating new vine and he becomes drunk. And what happens next is that his son sins against him greatly. And then we realize that the seed of the serpent is still on the boat. And curses ensue. And humanity falls again into corruption. And the water accomplished nothing. The next treasure chest is the covenant of Abraham. God promised that he would have a great land and nation. And that he would be a blessing to all the people in the world. He entered into a one-sided unilateral covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 in which he ratified this covenant by taking these animals and cutting them to form the covenant right down the middle. And you lay one of the animals on the left and one of the animals on the right. And Abraham fell into a deep sleep. The same Hebrew word used for when Adam fell in a deep sleep when Eve was made. The only other two times. And he saw a fire And he saw a cauldron of smoke pass between the parts. A self-maledictory oath to say, if I do not fulfill the promise I've given to you, Abraham, then let me die as these animals have died. God put all of the obligation of fulfilling the promises of salvation on himself. It is all of 
grace. It is all of his power, his glory, his might. And then Abraham wakes up. God adds to that covenant by saying, I will give you a child. You will have a nation. And he gives them the covenant of circumcision. And these three men approach Abraham. Abraham tells his wife to make three measures of flour for bread for three men. In Jesus' parable of the leaven, it was leaven that went through three measures that produces a hundred loaves of bread for a hundred people. Why would he make so much bread for only three visitors? These men are coming to Abraham to promise him the nations, that he would have children of many children, and he's given a sign of circumcision. There will be a covenant community uniquely distinct throughout all of human history that is inside this circumcision group of people, the male sex organ that produces seed, that goes back to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that there is one to come to crush the head of that serpent. And a child next year is miraculously born by the Spirit, Isaac, only to be shortly offered in sacrifice. A miraculously born child offered in sacrifice. By Genesis 22, God goes to Abraham and says, prove your faithfulness to me. Take your son, your only son, your miraculously born son, and offer him as a burnt offering. A burnt offering, unlike all the other offerings in the Old Testament, was the one in which everything was consumed except the outward hide of the animal. Like the hide that covered Adam's nakedness. And so Abraham goes up and puts his hand to the knife to slaughter his only begotten son. And God stays him. And a ram is caught in a thicket. And it says there that on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The next treasure chest. Moses is redeemed through water. Kind of like a flood. He's a small baby and they're trying to kill him. And he gets inside of a basket. In the Hebrew it's called an ark. It's the only other time primarily where that word is used for Noah's boat and Moses' basket. And he travels through the Nile and his life is spared. Shortly, he leads a whole nation that travels through the water and a nation is born through the Red Sea. Red Sea. He is here walking through a valley of death. There is death on the right, there is death on the left. That is water, a wall of water that could engulf them at any moment. And they walk through the valley of death and are spared. Just in Abraham's covenant, walking through the dead parts of the animal. Death on your left, death on your right. He's cutting. You see, he cuts the waters in Genesis, the beginning. He cuts the animals apart to cover the nakedness. He cuts the waters again to get them through the death, the valley of death. And there's death on the right and on the left. If you leave this covenant, you are done. If you are not in the grace, you are the Egyptians, and the water comes down on you. If you are not inside of the grace of Abraham, these animals are you. You are dead. You will die. And all these covenants are cutting, cutting animals, cutting water. And he takes him into the wilderness, that place where Cain was cast out. A strong east wind, by the way, is the one that parted the Red Sea. That same strong east wind that took away the flood. 
Adam was removed out of the garden from the east. The mountain has three layers. Like the boat that had three layers. Like the garden and Eden and the wilderness that had three layers. There's an outer edge to the mountain, the foot of the mountain, and not even Israel can touch it or they will die. Joshua and 70 elders are allowed to go up halfway through the mountain. And thirdly and finally, there's a most holy point on the mountain where only Moses can go. And he has to see the glory of God. And God shows him his glory. And he was with him 40 days. And they, it says in Exodus 24, they saw God standing on sapphire. And they ate and they drank a covenant meal. Confirming the promises And then on that mountain, with three layers, God gives them commandments to build a tent with three layers. There's an outer court, God tells Moses to build, that should be in bronze. It would be dusty. Animals will be slaughtered there. There will be a big water basin for the sea. There's a holy place made of silver, the inner place where there's a tree that's on fire, and it has stars, 12. There's a bread of the presence. There's an altar of incense. And there's a most holy place, a perfectly cube place, in which the foothold, the footstool of God is, the Ten Commandments, a box inside, in which on top is the mercy seat. And two angels, like the angels that guard the garden, are there surrounding the mercy seat. And there's nothing on the mercy seat. Every ancient civilization that were building temples in this time had something there. But there was nothing there. And we're told in Psalm 80 that what was there was a light that had no origin. It was the light of the glory of God, like the light on the very first day of creation that was there before the stars were made. What was that light all about? He makes a covenant with David that he will have a throne that cannot end, a dominion and a dynasty that will know no limitations. He makes, finally, a new covenant. As the people are corrupted, the kingdom advances with David. It is destroyed because of sinful kings. Solomon has a massive kingdom. He gives himself to idols, and everything is undone. And God promises that he will put his spirit within men. And days are coming, he says in Jeremiah 31, the last treasure chest before Jesus, is that there will be a new covenant, a day coming, and he will put the law within our heart, not in a box of gold. That he will write it on our hearts, and no longer will anyone ever be teaching one another, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will all be scribes. They will all be teachers of God's word. And here we have Before you today, a covenant meal that you see throughout all of time presented to you now. Jesus Christ fulfills this. A miraculously born person from the covenant community to crush the seed of the serpent. And his star traveled west. He came west. There was a light that moved above a manger. What kind of star does that? All the glory of God that left to the east, to the east, to the east. In Ezekiel, after David and Solomon fell, the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 10 went out to the east gate. The temple was made so that the door would always face east. And then Jesus is born. And a star, a glorious light that moves unlike other stars, is traveling west. And he is born. 
a virgin birth, a miraculous birth. He's baptized and identifies with sinners and a dove lands on him like in the new creation and there is no sin on him and the Holy Spirit remains on him and resides on him. On the mountain of the Lord is provided and the second man came and died naked on a tree. He walked out from the wilderness, from the outer court. He went into the holy place. He went into the garden of the center of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he pinned his body upon it. He went back to the tree that the first Adam fell. He demonstrates the knowledge and the glory and the goodness of God. Do you want to know what good is? Jesus, do you want to know what evil is? Jesus, he had to die because of the evil. And he lives in everlasting life because of righteousness. He has broken the temple and cracked the curtain. And he has ascended into the highest heights. All of that was images, you see. The scribal point is to pause and say, the temple, the mountain, the garden, it was all an image of the reality in his death, burial, and resurrection. He has actually went into the real holy place and sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he is the son of David, the son of God. And there he is, there interceding in the real presence of God for you and I. And everything else was just kindergarten. It was types and shadows and colors and paints. For he has not one line from the law will be broken until it is all fulfilled. And none of this was about real temples. It is all about Jesus giving his real life for your life. That you have him. And he offers you a meal. It's here today. It's come to you from thousands of years ago. Father God, we pray. Lord, that this would be your grace upon our life. Father, this meal that we would eat with you. Lord, that we would eat with you. We make promises, Father. We make promises that you have given us. That you are the man. You were sown perishable. You were sown in dishonor, in weakness, in just one simple body. You rose, Lord, imperishable in glory and power. The first man was a living being. Jesus Christ, you are a life-giving spirit. Lord, we come here to make this covenant. We understand what has been cut for us. It is your own body. In Jesus' name, amen.